Well, after uh, some thought, I decided just to continue this morning. I figured John will be giving us an Easter message at the regular 1030 worship service. So I decided not to do a special Easter message at the Sunday uh, school since we are in this series that uh, we are on uh, the 89th week, 89th message on this series, and uh, I am trying to hurry to finish it before fall, and I'm thinking it's going to end up about 120 parts or so. And so so I do want to just remind us, there's a handout we gave last week that's just a little uh, tool we gave people that lists... uh, at the top, it lists, uh, I think, around 22 of the most of the chapters that focus the most on Christ uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, his betrayal, his trial, uh, his suffering, etc., all the way through to his resurrection and, and ascension. And then uh, the rest of uh, the rest of page one and page two are just scriptures uh, that pertain directly to it that aren't whole chapters but are maybe three or four verses or, or, or so forth. So this is just a tool you can use uh, during, during Lent and Holy Week um, to th- meditate on the events that we commemorate at this time. So I also wanted to mention, you know, in, a, in what's called apologetics, 1 Peter 3.15 says um, to set apart or sanctify uh, Christ as Lord in our hearts, and then it says to always be ready, at all times be ready, that is prepared is what it really means, which involves studying, prepared to make a defense, which is the Greek word apologeo that we get apologetics from, to make a defense for the hope that's in you. So all Christians should study apologetics. I remember a young Christian at a Christian Bible college once that I was talking to about like reading his Bible and studying apologetics, and he kind of said, oh, no, no, I grew up in the church. I already know everything, and uh, yeah, I got this. And, uh, and I thought, you know, what an interesting response. But uh, apologetics, uh, there are, you know, major schools of apologetics, but I'm just going to cover two for a quick minute. There's what's called evidential apologetics, and there's what's called presuppositional apologetics. Now, those two ways of doing apologetics sometimes war against each other, which, as you know, our views on all sorts of things, part of the emphasis of Grace Christian Fellowship is the Christians should stop fighting about the things that have historically divided the church. And the truth of the matter is you could benefit greatly from both kinds of apologetics. There's no reason for them to be against each other. And... um, what the presuppositional apologetics people will point out is that people who don't walk with Christ are not rejecting Christ for lack of evidence. They're rejecting Christ because our sinful nature doesn't want to know God, love God, or whatever. We are running from the truth of God. Uh, that started when Adam and Eve tried to hide themselves in the garden. It dominates man's philosophies and and ideas throughout the centuries. It's uh, It's basically what the university is all about today, is men, as Paul says in Romans 1, suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, and professing to be wise, they become fools. In Romans 3, quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, says there's none who seeks for God, no, not one. 
So what a, what a lot of presuppositional apologetics guys will point out is it's a matter of being drawn by God, being convicted of your sin, being confessing your sins, being granted repentance. The kindness of God grants us repentance, Romans 2, 4, and that sort of thing. And people won't necessarily repent just because you prove that Christ rose from the dead. If you study how you do historical proofs or legal proofs, the resurrection of Christ can be defended in a court of law and would easily win. It's one of the it's a very established fact in history with abundant evidence and proofs behind it. But people don't reject Christ for lack of that. That's why the the presuppositional apologetics will quote Jesus in Luke 16 when he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus and then the rich man at the end of it says uh, please go send somebody to warn my brothers lest they come here also. And Jesus says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they listen if someone rises from the dead. And a lot of Christians sometimes uh, are a little surprised that if you prove the resurrection to someone, that they don't necessarily care or become a Christian, come under conviction or anything. So the presuppositional apologetics people will say, see, that's why you need presuppositional apologetics, not evidential apologetics. People do not reject God or Christ on the basis of the evidence. However, one thing I would just really encourage you to consider is for those who God has called, those he foreknew, those he predestined, those he justified, all that Romans 8 stuff, um, Presu uh, evidential apologetics is a great tool to strengthen your faith. So there are really, we have some very introductory simple books on it, like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Even, even simpler, his little The Case for Easter, which is a sliver of his Case for Christ. Uh, then, of course, there's Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter. A lot of you know that uh, Ray Nethery uh, discipled led Josh McDowell to Christ and discipled him when he was a young Christian because he was in Campus Crusade for Christ. And uh, so um, then, of course, there's much more thorough and intellectual stuff, but just starting with some simple stuff like that will really strengthen your faith. So, um, and of all the evidences of the Christian faith, you know, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the reality of the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, then what we're doing here is worthless, right? So um, you should at least take the time to build up your faith a little bit with evidential apologetics about the resurrection. And uh, that's all the Easter message I'm going to do today because I know John is going to do a great job. So I'm going to get back to... Um, your outline is, should show you on the top that we're running two series coterminously. We're uh, running the eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series, of which this is element seven. If you look at Roman numeral one, you'll see the eight elements listed. And off to the right in lighter print is when we covered each of those, uh, actually that when they were posted on, the, on our podcast. So if anybody ever wants to go back and do the series thoroughly, uh, the part of the point of this series is that something that lots of Christians have pointed out 
is evangelical Christianity has tended to, starting around the uh, Civil War, has had a consistent trend now going for a little over 150 years of reducing the gospel, reducing the gospel, reducing the gospel in two ways. One, trying to get it down to like four principles or five laws or something that fits neatly in a booklet that you can leave on a sink or something. Uh, and uh, uh, But the gospel is something that we Christians live by every day. You have to reorient yourself to the gospel every day to walk with God. You have to remember who God is, who we are, the deep gap between the two, uh, because of this power called sin. You have to use the Ten Commandments to help you uh, understand the depth of the sin of your heart. And you have to use the story of Israel to understand that the, everything about of the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ and has now been given to his church to do. And so the Bible is one continuous story. And every Christian needs to, to reorient themselves to those facts every morning so that you walk in the power of his resurrection. Galatians 2.20, if you haven't memorized, it should be a life verse that every Christian memorizes, where Paul says, I, uh, it, I, I'm going to start over here. Sorry, tripping over. Uh, he go, talks about how it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in this body, there's two different Greek words for flesh, soma and sarks. That one really means that in this human body, not in our sin nature. This life I live in this human body, which has a sin nature, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. The Christian life is not difficult. It's totally impossible. You couldn't be a good Christian for a second. So every day we have to cry out to God for the resurrection of Christ to live through us. And so uh, some people might say 120-part series on the gospel. I like to always kind of go the opposite way the culture's going. The second way the gospel has been reduced is fundamental concepts in it and so forth have been denied and lost. So, um, you know, that gets back to studying the what we call the apostolic hermeneutic around here. We, we often say the apostolic hermeneutic is correct and Christocentric. One of the great things God gives us through John on the 1030 messages is he helps us interpret all the scriptures the way Jesus said in Luke 24, 27, and Luke 24, 49, in two appearances on Easter Sunday to the disciples, I guess I'm doing an Easter message, uh, he told them that everything in the Old Testament was about him. Everything. And so, uh, you know, I have several Christian pastor friends who have come to me in private because they're, in some cases, they're much more national and well-known than me that have told me that they listen to our podcast all the time because they always knew going back to the 1970s and you know, even earlier that you're supposed to find Christ in the Old Testament. They just never knew how to do it. So I, I'd really encourage you to tap into that because, G, again, on Jesus' two resurrection appearances in Luke 24 the main thing he emphasized is that everything that was spoken about him in all the scriptures had to be fulfilled. 
the Jews could never understand Christ. The reason that the, the cross became a stumbling block to Jews, a scandalizo is the Greek, a scandal, is because the Jews had something like our prosperity faith gospel today, and they never believed that God would actually chastise his people, and they couldn't understand a suffering savior. Savior. And that's why every gospel presentation in the New Testament emphasizes that Christ had to suffer and that the prophets foretold that. Because the Jews had no room for that in their theology, even though they were much more fundamentalist than we are, they actually would memorize the first five books of the Old Testament by the age of 12 and two or 3,000 other scriptures by that age. We don't have that thorough of a Sunday school here, uh, although it would be nice. But uh, <laughs> that's something parents would have to be involved in. But so anyway... Um, I would encourage you to consider studying some apologetics, and especially if you're going to study evidential apologetics, familiarize yourself with some of the great arguments. There are big books like N.T. Wright's 1,200-page defense of the gospel, and there's little simple ones. And uh, you might start with a couple little simple ones, and if it's an exciting topic to you, Josh McDowell's, for instance, More Evidence of the Demands of Verdict is a lot more thorough than his More Than a Carpenter and so forth, and you could go on and on. Um, there's a professor at Denver Seminary who's quoted a lot in Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, who happens to be a member of the ARC and a leader in our Denver church. And so there's, you know, uh, and lots of people in our church can give you guidance as to how to find those books. But strengthen your faith, especially in the resurrection. So take that away from me, will you? So I have less things to... Uh, now, let's get into today's message. Uh, Je uh, Josiah, this thing's kind of falling apart. No, wait, I got it, I think. Okay. Um, there's the eight essential elements. We're on element seven. And we uh, call element seven the pattern. The you know, we uh, have a big idea in Grace Christian Fellowship that there are biblical models and patterns of everything. What is the church, et cetera, et cetera. So... Uh, Jesus Christ is our primary pattern. In, in the book of Acts, you'll see uh, seven examples of, that give us quite a bit of material about people coming to Christ, five that give us a whole lot of material about people coming to Christ. And in those five, you'll clearly see that New Testament Christians took five steps in the first week of being a Christian, and most Americans have taken one or two of those five steps. So um, what we want to do, of course, is get back to not just saying we're Bible-believing Christians, but to actually study enough and apply it enough to actually try to journey towards someday, hopefully, being more Bible-practicing Christians. And hopefully we're gaining on it all the time by the grace of God. So the third of those elements is... Uh, an element called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's called being filled with the Holy Spirit, poured out, the Holy Spirit poured out, and so forth. And it's uh, sometimes uh, people will call it a greater release of the Holy Spirit. Because it's a little bit hard to understand what this experience is all about. Because number one, it's very, very clear and very important that we all understand you get the Holy Spirit when you're converted. 
You could not be born again and converted in loving Jesus and experiencing the presence of God and worship and, and enjoying the presence of God when you read your Bible and wanting to be more godly and all the things that are evidence of conversion if you didn't have the Holy Spirit inside you. But the doctrine that that's all there is to get of the Holy Spirit, I always say, if you got it all, let's see it all. It should look something like the Bible's view of people who are filled with the Spirit. And most of us have come to expect less activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives in the church than even what was experienced in the Old Testament. So I'm going to jump ahead. We, we, uh, let's see, we're on chapter 4. In the first three chapters, we looked at the person of the Holy Spirit Actually, chapter 1, we looked at eight biblical word pictures for the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, we looked at the deity and personhood of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, we looked at the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but we tried to un-Americanize it into being uh, Christ-centered or God-centered, not just the ministry of the Holy Spirit in terms of how we think today, like, what does he do for me? What's in it for me? But the ministry of the Holy Spirit on behalf of the Father and the Son. He was sent by the Father and the Son, the creeds say, Together with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified, and he spoke through the prophets and so forth. So today we're going to turn the corner for chapter 4. We're going to look at the activities of the Holy Spirit that come out of, the, out of what we've covered already. The person of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit give birth to what he actually does in the Scriptures, to what we actually have see manifested. Just like the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart, which is why we have the thing when people are sort of passive-aggressive and they like to say hurtful things, they'll always go, just kidding. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, because the, you know, the mouth speaks out of the abundance, fills the heart. Your, your outer life comes out of what's in your inner life. And the activities of the Holy Spirit come out of who He is eternally in the, in the ontological trinity and what He does in terms of the economic trinity, if you want to use theological terms. So jump all the way down, like, oh, two-thirds of the way on first. And today we're going to talk about the activities of the Holy Spirit in the Hebrew Scriptures, which most Christians call the Old Testament. Now, just so you know, uh, the 39 books that Protestants uh, accept as, as the Old Testament Scripture were the same 39 books that the Jewish Sanhedrin scribes and Pharisees had, had uh, decided over a hundred years before Christ came were the final 39 books of the, of God's, uh, of the scriptures. Jesus never questioned that, nor the apostles, and they quoted from those books as if they accepted the fact that they were all the divinely inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. Okay, so Christians always accepted those 39 books from the earliest days of the church. Now, uh, some of you know that in the Counter-Reformation at the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church added six apocryphal books to the New Testament, and most Christians would agree that they have good history and some value, but we would not put them as the inerrant, infallible Word of God. So, just so you know, we're, looking, we're going to be looking at the activities of the Holy Spirit in the 39 books as much as we can in the remaining 25 minutes. All right, so that's not a lot, but it, it's an introduction and hopefully broad brush enough to, to, that you can flesh it out as you study the scriptures yourself. 
Uh, you know, we're always trying to equip you to get more out of Scripture in your own study. That's our goal here at Grace Christian Fellowship. So, um, the first thing I want to say in terms of the activities of the Holy Spirit is there are two Hebrew words that appear over 30, 350 times in the Old Testament, Ruach and Neshama. Now, uh, they mean spirit, breath, or wind. And they are uh, imagery. Because when I talk, uh, you, you know, something we don't think about much because we're fairly natural-minded in 1 Corinthians 2, you know, Western culture has become a culture of unbelief, and even Christians don't expect miracles and radically changed lives and people are being healed and delivered from emotional problems or you know we we have come to have very low expectations like all we do is pray a sinner's prayer and hang on to he- go to church and hang on to heaven but there's a lot more to what God wants to do in his people than that so um these three these 350 references one of the things you need to understand is sometimes they might be talking about a human person's spirit other times they're talking about God's spirit. You have to read the context. Okay, but it is impossible to speak without some kind of anointing on your words because no one could hear you if breath wasn't coming forth. Every word you hear in music, poetry, from the pulpit, in your classroom, uh, when two friends are talking, every word you hear has spiritual anointing on it. Now, sometimes... Uh, if a person is a rather godly person, but not in the sense of not having done a lot of immorality and maybe have a lot of demonicness or whatever, and uh, they're not particularly on fire for God or whatever, sometimes when people speak, you're just hearing a human spirit, but you're still hearing a spiritual word. The, Jesus said, the words I speak are spirit and life. All words have spirit and have anointing. It's impossible to speak without anointing but it can have just the anointing of a human spirit. However, our spirit is the place where other spirits reside, and we all know that people would say Adolf Hitler is a charismatic person, right? He's, he was very anointed with a very evil and bitter and nasty, and, uh, terrible message. It was totalitarian, it was hateful to all sorts of kinds of people, Jews, Christians, anybody with handicaps, etc., um, it was really demonically ludicrous, but it was very spiritual. <laughs> so, and then, of course, almost all pastors have experienced the flow and anointing of the Holy Spirit as they talk about God's Word or preach and, and so forth. So, all words have a spiritual anointing on them. Secondly, I am going to take us through the Old Testament, but since we don't have that much time, I'm going to try to give us just four major categories regarding the activities of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Use these categories when you're reading the Holy Spirit to see the activity of the Holy Spirit all through the Bible. As you remember when we were talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we had ten statements about it. One of those statements is that the Holy Spirit is a spirit, and he's holy, and therefore... By definition, wherever he's moving, there must be supernatural activity. If the Holy Spirit is present, there has to be things that go on beyond the natural mind. 
Now, in our in our uh, kind of anti Holy Spirit modern Christianity, we're still okay with the fact that the Holy Spirit might regenerate someone, and give and they might change their attitudes and motivations and and have joy in life in Christ. Right, but the Holy Spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just like in Hebrews thirteen eight, it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In fact, uh, something I pointed out in a discussion with uh, one of our favorite friends, Michelle Caldwell, this week that she was unaware of is that uh, as much as Athanasius was used to defend the deity of Christ, but uh, in his book on the Incarnation. He wrote a similar book defending the deity of the Holy Spirit, which was equally under attack at the time. And is an equally important book. We tend to focus in modern times on the Christological issues that were made clear in the first seven ecumenical councils and the uh, first four or five creeds. But uh, it's just as important to understand that the Holy Spirit is all the things we described when we talked about the attributes of God and the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Without that, we have less than a biblical Christianity. To not have an understanding of all three persons of the one being called God is to have a cultic Christianity. Today, the Holy Spirit is the neglected forgotten, and sometimes even opposed member of the Trinity in the church. So what we have to do is we have to go back and look at the, again, the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. Your activities come out of who you are on the inside. And likewise, when we see the manifestations of what the Holy Spirit does, that comes out of who he is. Hopefully we're clear on that point so we can get into that. So the first thing is the Holy Spirit is the creator, the giver, and sustainer of life. A lot of us know verses like in John 1 and Hebrews 1 and 1 John 1 that help us understand that Jesus is the creator. We know other verses that help us understand the Father is the creator. But the Holy Spirit is also the creator. (laughs) God, the creation was, you know, when in Genesis 1, 26, when, G, when God says, let us make man in his image, and he's talking within the, the deity or within the Trinity, he's, it's not just the Father and the Son talking. All three are saying, let us make man in, in our image. Okay, so Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2 in the beginning was the Word, first baseball reference in the Bible, right? In the beginning no. was the Word, <clears throat> and the Word was with, oh, yeah, I'm quoting John 1, 1 now, sorry. Uh, <laughs> in the beginning, God created the house. I, forgot, I got my wrong, my, the wrong in the beginning. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and so forth, but then the Spirit of God was moving on the waters. Very important. Verse 26, let us make God in our image according to our likeness. In Genesis 2, 7, when God is describing the making of of Adam and then Eve, then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, which is the biblical imagery for the material, physical part of ourselves, 
And he breathed into his nostril the breath of life, which is the word for spirit. The Holy Spirit breathed into man. And man became a living being, which means a self-conscious personality. And all human beings are made of those three parts in one person. Just, you know, the Trinity is a complex mystery. Humanity is a complex mystery. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are spirit, soul, and body in one being. And if you try to oppose one of those beings, like if you try to oppose a powerful kind of Christianity, because as Peter brings out that uh, destructive heresies were introduced, and, be, and it's because of them the way of the truth is maligned. What ha, what, where, where we're currently at in American Christianity is we realize, uh, we don't realize how much it had to do with leaving the ancient faith and the Reformed faith. And uh, when the evangelical movement stopped saying creeds at churches and started having Sunday school instead of catechism and, and all these different things, we don't realize where it's from. But what we do realize is that there's a proliferation of cults in modern times. There was a proliferation of cults that actually started in approximately 050, 60 AD, that's what Colossians and 1 John are both addressing, and blew into full-blown Gnosticism and all sorts of heresies that you probably should know, like Arianism and Docetism and Manichaeanism and so forth. Uh, but the, the ecumenical councils and the creeds wiped those cults out. And the church was uh, opposed by less cults. There's a process for the 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen predicts, Paul says, but destructive heresies were introduced among the people. The, the uh, King James says heresies. Most modern translations say factions or schisms. But the Greek word heresis is the, tra is the traditional word for heresy. Ortho uh, ortho uh, heterodoxy, ideas outside the bounds of the Christian faith. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians that it's going to be a necessary process in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen for these destructive heresies to, to challenge the church in order that the church will have to come together and the way of the truth may become obvious or manifest. And so the heresies actually served the church well because they gave us the definitions of the canon of Scripture and the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the symbol of Chalcedon and the Athanasian Creed. Got those out of order, but chronologically, but and so forth. Because God had ordained a sovereign process to make what the apostles had taught in the New Testament very clear throughout the centuries, right? And he, you know, he only, like we miss the sovereignty and providence of God in our day. God only allows the devil and deception and wrong ideas to serve his purposes in the end. Satan, in his heart, is an opponent of God. And, but in the end, he still serves God's purposes because God is that great. So anyway, let's move on. Genesis 7.22 mentions all three parts of man. Job 33.4, Logan's favorite book. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. I finally convinced some of our Wright State students to read it because they didn't want to read it because they thought it said job. No. Same old bad jokes. See, that, 
my, I tell my wife this all the time. The reason we have to work at evangelism and discipleship is so I can use the same jokes. We have to, uh, we have, to have new people all the time so I can use the same bad jokes. All right, that's, that's my real motivation. You thought, you thought I was in love with God and had compassion on fallen man. I just, I just need a new audience for more the same jokes. But uh, All right, let's flip over the page. Secondly, The Holy Spirit inspires, that is, he speaks the word of God. Uh, There's a parenthesis that's not supposed to be there. And fills and anoints prophets, judges, priests, and kings. In the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures, and I'm not going to get into today why I like the Hebrew Scriptures name more than I like the Old Testament name, but they're both good. Uh, in, In the Old Testament, God by his Holy Spirit for the most part, anoints and does powerful things through priest first, judges second, prophets third, and kings fourth. So they're not actually listed on the page in the order they appear in the, you know, but the first ministry was a priest, the second ministry is a judge, the third is the prophets, and finally the kings. Okay, so let's look at some verses that bring this out. And you could find more, by the way. This is, you know, I have a rule that I only put as many verses in as I can fit on the front from both sides of a page. So these are just suggestive to get you started. If you want to see this point, you have tools like Bible Gateway and, you know, you don't even need old-fashioned concordances anymore. I like, you know, search engines and all that stuff. I mean, it's a great time to be alive for biblical studies. It's all free at your fingertips. <laughs> so... uh Numbers 11.25, then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, (coughs) excuse me, and he took of the Spirit who was upon him, that is Moses, the him is Moses, and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. You know, it's interesting that we've grown accustomed, and there are actually people who defend the church being a nonprofit organization. That's a little joke, too. Uh, but in both, so I'm all for it being a nonprofit organization in terms of the IRS. But the church is often a nonprofit organization in that no one is speaking the word of God under the power of the Holy Spirit and expecting God to do that. But God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He doesn't change. And he doesn't have different economies, as the modern idea of dispensationalism would tell you. So, what happens here is the Holy Spirit that was on Moses, God takes that Holy Spirit and puts it on 70 of the elders, and they prophesy. Now, John did a message that you can find on our podcast about Miriam and so forth, opposing Moses. But what Miriam and and uh, Aaron oppose Moses, they they come to Moses here and they say, Moses, the other people are prophesying in your name. Should we stop them? And Moses prophesies back. Right? And he says something that would be very true after Pentecost. I would that all God's people would be prophets. It is not biblically normal for someone after the event called Pentecost that was 50 days after uh, the Good Friday. Um, it is not normal for God's people not to be prophets. All God's people are supposed to be prophets.
left my keys in my pocket. So, um, you know, Moses basically says, are you jealous for me? It's kind of similar to remember in the Gospels when they come up to Jesus and say, we saw people casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop them because they weren't part of our club. You know, <laughs> these guys aren't hanging with us, like, so they can't, they can't be doing that. <laughs> and Jesus said, no, 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 no. No one can do a mighty thing in my name and soon speak evil of me. Let them alone. Let them do it. 2 Samuel 23.2, David, at the end of his life, is summing up his ministry. He's telling, this is what God did with my life. And this is one of the lines from that speech. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Of course, we see that mostly in the Psalms, but in many other portions, especially in uh, 2 Samuel. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11, a New Testament verse, but when it talks about prophets, it's talking about the Old Testament prophets. When it talks about apostles, it's talking about the New Testament office of apostle. So Peter says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Where did they search? Not just their navels and in their inner being and feelings. They were actually searching all the scriptures that had been written up to their time. And then some of the things they prophesied became more scripture. But they were searching all the, all the ways in which the books of Moses and Joshua and Judges and so forth were predicting. Let's pick it up wherever I left off here. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated, indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. You'll notice that every speech of the apostles in the book of Acts spends time accusing the Sanhedrin of having delivered up Christ to, to death and rejecting the Messiah God sent them. And they're finishing Christ's covenant lawsuit that Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies and God is done with you people. Hal Lindsay to the gun, notwithstanding. And there's an emphasis all the way through the New Testament of the, that the Holy Spirit made clear that the Christ must suffer. It's as if the, the Lord in his grace and mercy said, man, 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 pay attention now. I know it's not within you to know my word says this, so I'm going to make sure I shout it out that my word says this. Both Testaments do that about the sufferings of Christ because the Jews rejected Christ because they just had no room in their theology for a suffering Messiah. Just like we in modern American Christianity have no room in our theology for many biblical things. Luke 24, 27 and 44 through 49 Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. The Holy Spirit had already spoken all about, remember that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, remember the activities come out of the ministries, and one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit was he came to bear witness of Jesus. And he didn't just start doing that after, after the resurrection. He did that from Genesis 1, verse 2 on through. 
Now, by the way, if you know how the Hebrews thought of the scriptures, both when Jesus says Moses and all the prophets, that's one way Jewish people at his time would say the Old Testament, the 39 books that we call the Old Testament that they would have thought of as just the scriptures. Another way they talked about it was to divide it into three, which is what he does in the second verse. He calls it the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but the scriptures bear witness of me. And if you're not seeing me in the scriptures, you're not reading them right. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers through television, I'm sorry, prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. 2 Peter 3, 2, that you should remember the word spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. What made him holy, by the way? In the Old Testament, well, through the whole Bible, but the Old Testament teaches a lot about holiness. Nobody wants to read Leviticus anymore. I always get this from people that are just coming to the Lord. Man, I bog down when I read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, uh, Le- you know, Leviticus teaches us what's holy. And guess what makes something holy? God. Proximity to God. The holy prophets were only holy prophets because they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They had no holiness in themselves. No one was, you know, there's a kind of a modern idea that people in the Old Testament were saved by works. <laughs> that didn't ever happen. Paul makes that pretty clear in Galatians. Nobody was ever saved by works. Uh, if anybody tried to approach God on the basis of his own holiness, he would probably ha- would have had to kill him. All right. Thirdly, we're running out of time. i got to move faster. He causes regeneration. He calls people, he equips them, he empowers them, and he gifts them, he ordains them, and he even causes their strategies to triumph, even in warfare. Now, I hope you see that that sounds a lot like the New Testament, (laughs) what the Holy Spirit does. Psalm 51.10, create in me a clearing heart, renew a steadfast spirit. Has anybody ever had any problems with being steadfast? Go ahead, be honest. <laughs> I, those of you who didn't raise your hands are probably asleep or paying attention. I hope you're not just liars. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, the, the truth of the matter is Jesus is called faithful and true, right, in the book of Revelation. If you have any steadfastness, if you have any perseverance, if you have any consistent Christian life, if you're not a yo-yo Christian like my dieting, yo-yo, yo-yo, if you have any consistency, it's because the faithful and true one is living his life through you, and you're no longer living on your own power and strength and out of your own efforts. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Now, I love this one in Exodus where he says, See, I have called Bezalel, I guess is how you pronounce it, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in all kinds of prophesying and speaking in tongues and Bible reading. Oh, wait. In his vocational calling. To do math. 
in wisdom and in understanding and knowledge and all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for, for work in gold and silver and bronze and the cutting stones for setting in the craving of wood that they may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. One of the reasons we're losing the culture is because we've lost the Protestant idea called the Protestant work ethic that all, all vocations are holy unto the Lord. It is as holy to be called to be a plumber as it is to be a pastor. And you should do it with love and zeal for God. Max Weber, one of the great historians of all time, wrote a book called The Protestant Work Ethic that he basically argued that it was the Protestant Reformation's work ethic that made Western culture prosperous. You know, today you'll hear that it was because America had lots of native natural resources. <laughs> it's like they, and they believe that stuff. Because you can pull a lot of things over blind people's eyes. So, <clears throat> you know, Exodus 35, 30 through 33 repeats the same thing. Deuteronomy tells us now Joshua, the son of Nun, <clears throat> was filled with the spirit of wisdom. He was the only other person besides uh, Adam and Eve that didn't have parents. He was the son of none. Okay. <laughs> he was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded. Now, uh, judges, when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the, raised up, the Lord raised up a judge or a deliverer for the sons of Israel, Othaniel, the son of Canaan, Caleb's brother, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. Do you know it takes the Spirit of God to govern? Even in your family, and where you work, and in the church, and all the different governments God has instituted among men. Uh, you can go through the book of Judges and look at the stories of Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. The Spirit of the Lord raised them up, and the Spirit of the Lord accomplished what, what he did through them. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily. I love this one. Wish I had more time. I always manage my time poorly. 1 Samuel 10, 6-10 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily. You shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. This is Samuel telling Saul what's going to happen to him. Uh, after Samuel anoints him to be king and sends him back to his dad because he said your dad's uh, not worried about the oxen or the donkeys anymore. He's worried about a different kind of, never mind. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily and he prophesied among them. So even Saul, what, one of the things people don't notice, I don't know what to do about Saul with the perseverance of the saints or whatever. Uh, we could, that would be a fun theological discussion anyway. But uh, Saul does some amazingly wise spiritual things for about three chapters before the, his fear of man and his idolatry towards what the people think of him and so forth began his downfall. And that's kind of amazing, right? You know, he delivered the men of Jabez Gilead. Remember that after Jabez Gilead, all the people wanted to kill all the people who had opposed Saul's kingship. And Saul, wisely, by the Spirit of God, said, no, 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 no. God has given us a great victory today. No one is going to be put to death today. And he did exactly something you could only have the wisdom to do by the Holy Spirit.
Uh, let's go, last thing is that the Holy Spirit works miracles. He heals people. He raises the dead. You know, the raising the dead isn't just a New Testament phenomenon. He demonstrates miraculous control of nature. You know, like the sun stood, stood still for 10 hours so they could beat up on the enemies a little bit more and not run out of time. <laughs> I like that. Uh, if you read Genesis chapters 49 and 50 and you analyze uh, the patriarchs' blessings over the 12 tribes and so forth, uh, some amazing things are predicted that came to pass. Joseph's dreams, the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna, the water from the rock, the 70 prophesying, the sun standing still, God raising up all the different judges, of some of whom we listed above, Naaman the leper, Elijah in the widow's jar, Elijah in the prophets of Baal. That's one of my favorite ones. Uh, that's one you all dads should tell their kids as they're talking a minute. <laughs> when Elijah had all the prophets of Baal killed. But... Uh, <laughs> That and the king of Moab and Eglon, that's one of them. I always told my boys that story before I put them to bed. So, uh, all right, so let me just end quickly by because I'm more than five minutes past my time already. Um, three observations you need to make about the activity of the Holy Spirit that will take us to next week. We're, we're going to look at the activity of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Every gift of the Spirit that's listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11, is done in the Old Testament with the exception of speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues. Seven of the nine gifts are experienced regularly through priests, judges, prophets, and kings. However, the, the things of the Spirit were more limited in their distribution among God's people than they are after Pentecost, when all God's people are supposed to be prophets and do these things. One of the things, my last point I just need you to think about, is three times in the book of Hebrews, it goes to great pains to tell us that we have a better covenant. So the modern idea that's developed since evolution and and since uh, the Enlightenment and since Western culture has become pseudoscientific and skeptical and unbelieving, the modern idea that we should expect less of the power of the Holy Spirit in the church is just that it. It's a modernism. It's as much as a modernism as the liberal churches that don't believe in the resurrection uh, or the virgin birth or anything else. Lots of so-called Bible-believing fundamentalist churches would never allow the Holy Spirit to do these things in our midst. And that is not biblical, and that is actually fighting against the Holy Spirit, just like the Bible accuses Israel of doing over and over again. Amen.